Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's episode of Before I'm Successful. Today's guest, Daniel Byrne. <laughs> Daniel, you've got a very interesting and complex story, and I've written down a few things. From creating the Powerlifting Society here in Birmingham, to shaking hands with the devil, the steroid devil, from having a life-changing, I could say, experience with psychedelics, to making real-life sacrifices in order to follow your dreams. From starting a company, I'm not sure I can talk about just yet, to creating viral YouTube videos, one of them getting over 2 million hits. But, Daniel, one of the things that truly represents you is that you, my friend, are a storyteller. How did your passion for creating mesmerizing stories through the lens of a camera start? Wow, where do I start? So, I think it traces back. My family is very much a record everything family. From, the, from a young age, my, my parents recorded everything I did. Um, I have so many memories that are immortalized, so to speak, in video form. Um, so I can look back on them. And that really, up until very recently, or not, not even, a few years ago, I kind of realized that I really like that. I like being able to cap not only capture, but archive all of my memories, organize them, revisit them whenever I want to. And where a story comes in is, you know, you know they say with memories, you recall the last time you recall the memory and not the actual event. Uh, one of the reasons why everyone has had such an easy and cool childhood that was amazing and, and there was no stresses because we, we tend to look back at our childhood when we are aware of our current stresses mm -hmm. and it kind of over time reforms the memory of our childhood to one that was really easy and that one that was really joy filled but we were stressed back then and we had anxieties and we were bullied or you know anything that happened and it's, so it's interesting how memories form and I find that storytelling is such a powerful tool to help that, help create cool memories, not only for yourself, but for everyone involved, but also to give your life just a much richer and deeper meaning. Mm -hmm. And I think it's super important. So what do you understand by storytelling? What is your opinion about it? What does it mean, actually? So it's telling a story. So a story is something that has a start and an end and an arc. A set like in its simplest form. Um, and you know, a good story is one that keeps you engaged. The one that you want to know what happens at the end. It, it captures your interest, it hooks you all the way to, until the climax. And it moves you in a way that you don't expect. The best stories are the ones that you don't expect because that really keeps you on your toes. Um, a good example of this, and the principles of storytelling apply across the board. They apply to film, cinema, they apply to music, they apply to conversation, they apply to marketing, but it's that once the audience or whoever you're speaking or communicating to can figure out what you're going to say, where you're going with something, they tune out. Um, and so if you've ever been speaking to someone, they're like, they're telling you a story and you know, because of the way they tell their stories, you know, they probably already told you what happened at the end, 
at the start of the story and then they're just wasting your time by telling you all this kind of use you know because you figured it out once you figured it out you don't really so good storytelling is about keeping people engaged on their toes and constantly surprising them um, and I think that's such an important skill because it makes you the kind of person that people want to listen to emotion when you talk you move them you you keep them on their toes they, they don't know what you're going to say but they're on the edge of their seat listening to what you have to say um, and you owe it to yourself to develop that skill because if you don't people won't find you as interesting to listen to so throughout time have you developed a set of steps you're taking every time you tell a story or is it more dynamic than that it's a work in process in progress uh, I'm by no means an expert storyteller but it's as a general rule of thumb when I tell a story or a joke or anything it's just I try to think of a way that would surprise someone like that they would the, just to shock someone they would have no idea what I was what I'm about to say in a joke or even just in a story um, and I, I don't tell stories unless I've thought of a way to surprise because there's nothing more boring than a shit story there's just, just nothing like a good example Ricky Gervais just released a uh, Netflix series called Afterlife and in it it says have you ever heard someone tell you about their dream and so there's nothing more boring boring than someone describing a dream to you it's nonsensical there's no real story or plot it's just kind of literally nonsensical words hurled at you and everyone who listens to someone else's dream is kind of like you know, and so it's basically good storytelling is avoiding telling stories that you know people don't want to listen to and being aware of when people are and aren't listening. I think it's, it's more mastering that, understanding the audience and adapting to the audience. So I'm guessing that you've read a couple of books at least about the subject. What are those that you feel helped you the most in order to understand how to tell a story properly? So the best one or before I, before I even answer that question, um, like I said, this, the principles of storytelling apply across all forms of media. But cinema is the, is the most studied form of storytelling that we have. Uh, and so, so what am I going to say? So the book that I recommend is called Story by Robert McKee. It's referred to as the Bible of storytelling by a lot of film essay writers on YouTube and things like that. And although it's specifically for film and cinema, it teaches you a lot of the foundational principles of storytelling, such as keeping people on the edge of their seat, making them work for the, the climax, you know, making them feel like they're... Another thing that's super important is, is knowing that audiences are actually very clever. When you watch a film, you think you're very clever when you watch a film. You think you, you're, trying to, you're constantly trying to figure it out, you're constantly trying to, you know, and you genuinely have this intellectual sort of, not arrogance, but, you know, it's, and it's really about respecting the audience and respecting that they're a lot smarter than, than most people think. So, you really, it's all about appealing to the audience. And this book teaches that. And, you know, if you, if you make a film, for example, and it just does not get a good reception in cinema or in, in front of an audience, it's pretty safe to say that it's not a very well-told story, not a very well-organized story. And it's, 
and the beauty of cinema is that you get that feedback. You know, you don't really get it socially from your friends or anything like that because no one really listens to you in that way, you know, picking apart the quality of your stories. But um, it's, it's really, I think it's really important to, to learn storytelling, even if it's in cinema, so that you can take all those principles and just apply them in life, conversation, business, music, if you mean anything creative really, but just... So Story by Robert McKee, excellent book. Um, there's another one, there's one about, oh, I'll get it up on the screen, it's storytelling in comic books. And again, because the principles of storytelling are so kind of... It, God, storytelling in my head is such a, still an abstraction, I can't fully articulate it yet. But it's the same with graphic novels and comics. It's, it's what makes a reader want to keep flipping the pages till the end is something, you know, and what is that? It's, it's a story that... It's a story well told, it keeps you guessing. Um, what it, another, another important point of storytelling is that you're essentially telling the audience that life is like this. So however you are framing life, you're telling them that life is like this. And if they believe your story and they buy it, they get invested, it's because they also agree that, or they can get into that frame of mind that life is like this. So you, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So in your opinion, can you convince someone through the way you're selling a story that what you're saying is actually true? As in, you said that you have to, the, the audience has to agree with you in order to get the story across properly. Yeah. Do they have to agree with the topic in general from the beginning or can you use your power of storytelling to convince them afterwards? Yeah, the, you can. A good example, it's not very PC, but let's say there was... I love those. <laughs> let's say there was a film about a pedophile, a story about a pedophile. Right, a story well told about a paedophile would be one that accurately portrayed, let's say, the life of someone who is burdened with the fact that they're not attracted to adults like everyone else around them, that they're attracted to children and that they know it's wrong and that if it, it's, it makes them want to kill themselves. And if you, you know, if you really told the story from their perspective in a way that you, know, you could get behind it, if it was well told, you could be like, fuck, that would be awful. Not, if you, if you were a paedophile that didn't act on your sexual urges, if it was just something that you had to do, like, that would be awful. And so you might not, like, I, well, most of us completely disagree with paedophilia. You know, it's just like, put them in jail, fuck them, remove them from society. But if a story well told would be one that painted the, you know, the story of someone who's just suffering their whole life with this. And so that's the power of storytelling, if that makes sense. Even if it's something you disagree with, it's being able to understand how that could happen and how in a different set of circumstances that could be you, you know, and it's telling that story well. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking that question because it seems like you understand storytelling at least enough <laughs> to create that YouTube video I mm -hmm. talked about in the beginning, over 2 million hits. What was the thought process behind that, behind creating it? This was before I got into the sort of academia of storytelling, mm -hmm. um, you know, all of the books and stuff I've read. But it was basically, if I put I put a link or put a link in the description. But it was 
It's a video about Arnold Schwarzenegger, bodybuilder, and Lou Ferrigno, bodybuilder. Lou Ferrigno played the Hulk in the 70s. They competed against each other in bodybuilding for years, and Lou always came second place. And um, no matter what he did, you know, Arnold was a cheeky Kent, and he would always he used psychological warfare on Lou and put him down, and whatever he did, but he always won and Lou always came second. And there wasn't a video about this on YouTube, but I found a really cool story. So I just organized all these clips I found, put a soundtrack behind it, because I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to, I wanted to show someone else. And then, yeah, I made the video. Um, and in the first year, I got like 800 views, 1,000 views. People at university, if they saw that video, they, they probably thought like, ooh, Daniel makes like bodybuilding films. Uh, that's a bit weird. And then, like, six months after that, it just picked up. I think it blew up in India. <laughs> and just genuinely, just overnight, 100k views, and then I think now it's at two and a half million. I don't, I don't know why. So you said something really interesting. Uh, the fact that at university people looked at you as in, oh, Daniel's making this YouTube video stuff. But before that, you, in the first year, you did something quite uh, interesting. Right, you created yeah. a Facebook page. <laughs> can you can you talk about that and how that changed you? Yeah, throughout that that year. Yeah, absolutely. So why did you start it? Okay. How did it change you? Okay. So, I know, like I know, I want to be on, not necessarily even YouTube, but just be a, have my personality online and have just like some sort of presence. And influence and be able to tell stories and, and inspire people or wh whatever it is. I know I want that, but I'm so like, I'm so shackled by my own self awareness and by fear, fear and what people think and stuff like that. Well, I used to be, and also people would probably describe me as someone who isn't like that, who probably doesn't really give a shit. But there was still something that just something about putting yourself out there, your true self online, that's really you know vulnerable because. If you get humiliated for it, but that's the fear at least, you know, that's why it's so kind of paralyzing. So I made a Facebook page, <laughs> um, a troll one, where I just posted pictures of myself from when I was like 14, 15, really skinny, and, but with really ballsy out there captions, you know, t telling my audience like, fuck you, if, if you think I'm small, whatever it is, you know, all these big grandiose paragraphs, very kind of, I don't even know how to explain it. it, all my friends knew that I was just joking, it's kind of creative writing, but it was shocking enough that the first post I made got like, it reached like 80,000 people overnight, I remember I made the first post in bed, just like fuck it, and I woke up, 80,000 likes, uh, 80,000 reach, sorry, not 80,000 likes, like a thousand comments, 200 likes, and and it's so much there's so much hate there's so much hate everyone was like this fucking kid looks like uh ugly or you know whatever the hate was and i was just like oh this is kind of addictive so i made like another post and and you know the same thing but then like people at my university or people at the university here they liked it on facebook they'd come up to me they'd be like fucking hell like i can do that fair play like kind of respect in a way and, and um, the whole project was, it was a personal project to 
get used to putting yourself out there. It was quite an extreme page, so the, the hate I got was quite extreme. Um, and it wasn't that bad. Like, and it was still me, even though it was younger, it was still pictures of me. Um, and yeah, it wasn't that bad. And having people come up from university telling me that like, made me realise that everyone is fucking scared of what people think. Everyone is scared to put their true self out there for fear of being mocked. And so it was quite empowering to feel like I'd overcome that. And I feel like it helped me really overcome putting myself out there. No one, no one gives a shit. Everyone's so concerned about their own Bubble. fear. Yeah, their own fear. They, they don't even notice the, the spotlight effect. You heard of that? Mm -hmm. It's a good one. Yeah. It's a good one. So, is this something you do, you tend to do throughout your life? Yeah. Is it? What, what other examples are there? What other insane things you've done? In what sense? For instance, the what you did with your Facebook page, right? Other things like that that helped you burst that bubble of yours. Because that one, the, the Facebook page was a was an impressive one. <laughs> so, posting pictures of yourself naked, uh, topless, with uh, with captions the way you did, not a lot of people are able to do that. No. And so why? Yeah. Why? It, it. It's crazy. Yeah, not a lot of people could do it. Why? Like I did it. It didn't change my life at all. It didn't change my life at all. People were just like, huh, that's pretty ballsy. And it really made me realize the spotlight effect, like I was saying. Everyone, everyone is the center of their own universe and is the main character of their own show. You know, TV yeah. show, whatever. And, and they're all, everyone is so concerned about their own flaws, about their own insecurities, you know, like, if, you, if you've ever heard people laughing behind you, you immediately go, your head goes to like, they're laughing at, this insecurity I have, or that, you know, and it, everyone's always just thinking about them and their own world. But they don't, they don't really care what you do. They actually don't. Like, if you vlog in public, I've done this, you just walk around with a camera and talk to it. You think that everyone's looking and judging at you, but if you've ever seen someone do that, like, you just go, huh, what's that guy doing? <laughs> and then you go, you forget about him five seconds later. And that's how everyone kind of sees it. That's how the world. That's how I think the world works. It's realizing that. It's realizing that you can do anything, that no one really cares. People respect you if you're ballsy. Mm -hmm. People respect you if you just do something that not many people can do, and it's empowering. It's empowering across the board. It, it trickles down into your business confidence, into your you know, interpersonal confidence, into your spiritual, like all of these areas. When you do things that scare you or that people would be scared of, you feel like you're this super being that, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, it, it's hard to explain, but I think of, I think you get the idea, right? Right. So after you've created that page, uh, you ran it for about a year, right? A year, yeah. Yeah. And after that, you've created an Instagram page called Danielism or during that period, how did the Danielism come to? Danielism, that's my Instagram, fitness Instagram. That was basically, fitness is, no, fitness is a big part of my life. Um, and it used to be huge, because I was a skinny kid growing up, very skinny. At 18 years old, I was like 56 kilos. Um, yeah, twink. 
No, um, and yeah, I started going to the gym when I was 18. I was studying engineering at the time. And then I realized I did not, did not want to do engineering. It just wasn't for me. I wasn't an engineer by personality and I didn't, I didn't want to work for 50 hours a week. I, I just knew I didn't want to do engineering. So I went and did maths. And around this time I started going to the gym because I felt like I didn't really have much purpose. Sorry, didn't have much purpose in my life. And uh, started going to the gym, I was like, time to turn, turn my life around. I haven't, I haven't stopped since, so that was 18 and 25 now. And so yeah, I was, did maths for two years, again realised I didn't want to do it. Sports science um, was my third degree, I finished it here. But yeah, so I, with that realisation I was like, yeah, I'll make fitness my career and I'll make money from my physique um, and I'll be like, finally I'll have this, I don't know, you know, I'll be recognised for my physique or I'll be recognised for my fitness accomplishments that I never used to have. And that was the kind of, that's where I started the Instagram. And I built it, I think I started it in 2014. But I haven't really posted on it in two years. I can't. So what happened two years ago when you stopped? Um, whew. So, realising that I wanted to make fitness my career. And having half-decent genetics for bodybuilding and powerlifting, I thought, you know, let's do it. Um, so I decided to diet down because everyone on Instagram that has a fitness Instagram is lean, very lean. So I was like, well, I'm going to get very lean. And as I did, I just started losing all of my muscle and started, well, not all of it, that's how it felt, but I was losing muscle, I was losing strength. And this is, you know, progress that I, that had taken years to achieve that it just felt like, you know, someone was just taking like a sinking boat, someone was just taking buckets of water and chucking it out that quickly. I know how that feels. And I was just like, and now I don't feel strong, I don't feel big, I don't feel lean, I just feel shit. Like, this is at the time, obviously, my whole mindset's changed. But so at the time, I was like, how am I going to make it in fitness? Like, I need some help, I need some... Because I don't look like these guys, they're so lean, but they're so big at the same time. And So I took steroids. I decided to take steroids in my second year at university. Um, I took testosterone, injected it once a week, every week for two years. And, a long um, time. A long time. You should not stay that long. But um, yeah, just because I wanted to be lean but big. Can, can we talk about steroids from a different perspective, from the moral engagement perspective? Okay. Let's, uh, let's start with that and... Uh, see why you started taking steroids from a more uh, scientific perspective. Okay. Good, good idea. So, it's an interesting... I did my dissertation at university on the psychology of doping behaviour, academic and sports doping, so steroids in sport and study drugs in academia, and comparing like paralleling them and seeing if there were similar psychological mechanisms that enable doing both, or are they the same? Because uh, it's technically cheating. Yeah, gaining an advantage through drugs to improve your performance and com compete better against your peers. But with steroids, 
the dissertation I did, and this check completely, completely changed my life. It, it, oh my goodness. So, Albert Bandura, social cognitive psychologist, um, he, in his essay, uh, Social Cognitive Theory of Moral Thought and Action, he wrote it in 1991, uh, he, he describes in detail how people form their moral agency, their moral compass, that you know, the sense of morality. And then, as well as that, in his essay, he talks about how perfectly moral people, with perfectly well-developed moral agencies, how those people can go against their moral agencies to do things that they know or that would typically be viewed as immoral or tran transgressive is what he calls them, acts of transgression. Um, and it's very interesting. And I, so I studied this at university. I did my dissertation on it, on the, uh, the psychosocial factors of um, doping behavior amongst student athletes, both doping in sport and academic. So steroids in their sport and study drugs for their you know, academic lives. And, and paralleling uh, whether the mechanisms that enable both are, are, are actually similar. And if so, can all of the, the literature on the psychology of doping and sport be useful to helping the problem of so many students taking these study drugs? Uh, because the universities don't, don't know what to do at the minute. They, they literally, there's no solution really. But anyway, separate point. So moral disengagement is how we disengage from our morals and how that happens is through the use of any of six psychosocial mechanisms that comprise moral disengagement. So there's normally eight, but in regards to illicit drug use, there's only six because the last two mechanisms relate to the victim that you cause harm, but in illicit drug use, that's yourself. So the six mechanisms by which we disengage from our morals. And I'll talk about it first in the context of recreational drug use. I think it's a lot easier to digest and to maybe understand by the audience. But um, moral disengagement has been studied in so many different fields, like supporting terrorism, uh, aggression in sport, uh, illicit drug use. I can't even remember all of them now, but there are loads. Um, I'll put them up on the screen. So let's go. So this is the first mechanism. And if you do any of these, you've disengaged from your morals. So with recreational drug use, the first one, advantageous comparison. That is comparing your act to one that is more heinous, more dangerous. Uh, so I'm only doing half a pill. All my friends are doing a full pill or two pills or, you know, so it's not that bad what I'm doing. So minimizing the consequences of, you know, what you're doing. Euphemistic labeling. It's using convoluted language to downplay the severity again of what you're doing. So instead of calling it MDMA, you call it Mandy. Or instead of cocaine, you call it Charlie. And again, it's just, it's an interesting way that we use language to influence the way we think. The third moral justification, that is, Claiming that what you're doing is actually serving a higher and valued social and moral purpose. So, recreational drugs. You might tell yourself, 
when's the last time I did this with all my friends? You know, when's the last time we all got together and hung out and, and had such a close night and close conversations? That's moral justification. You're using that. And it's perfectly valid, like I do it too and we all do it, but that's one of the mechanisms. Four and five are diffusion and displacement of responsibility. So diffusion of responsibility is the more people are doing it, the less bad you feel. If you're the only person that does drugs on a night out, you probably feel pretty shit about it. But as soon as all your friends do it, um, it's just something that everyone's doing. It's fine. The, the, the responsibility is divided by the number of people who are doing it. Um, displacement of responsibility is claiming that it was because of someone else pressured you to do it. It was like, oh, come on, do it. You know, it wasn't you that made the decision. You were pressured by a coach. So in doping, it's a coach, but perhaps more relevant, but on a night out, maybe your friend just handed you a bag and you tell yourself that you felt pressured because they handed you the bag even though you were in total control of yourself. And then distortion of consequences, which is just downplaying the severity of what you're doing in terms of the side effects. So, and that can manifest itself as, you know, people saying that the media exaggerate the effects of drug use or your parents don't understand, you know, oh, the news, they stop listening to the news, it's actually fine. And it, it may very well be, but that's distortion of consequences. So, using any of those six mechanisms, and most of the time they all kind of happen in conjunction with each other, is how social psychologists uh, believe that we disengage from our moral agency, our moral standards. From the case of steroids, how did that play out for you? So in the case of steroids with me, that was, we'll go through them one by one, advantageous comparison. I'm only doing 250 milligrams of testosterone. All these other bodybuilders are doing two grams, they're doing three grams, you know. That's fucked, I'm only doing this much. Euphemistic labeling, calling it gear or roids instead of anabolic steroids or, um, you know, testosterone. Uh, it's, it's shorter to say gear as well, so it's kind of an efficiency thing, but still. Um, moral justification. I'm doing it to make fitness my career. I'm doing it to help other people use drugs safely. Diffusion of responsibility and displacement of responsibility was just... Everyone on Instagram is using steroids. Like, everyone who's into fitness uses steroids, so, you know... You have to. You have to if you want to have an Instagram, if you want to have make a career out of your physique, you have to be on steroids. And I created this sort of network in my head of the people that I looked at closely on Instagram that I thought I was kind of, that I wanted to be like, I guess. And I went, you know, like, everyone's doing it, I need to do it, but it's fine because everyone's doing it. And then distortion of consequences, obviously, is, um, they're not as bad as the media makes them out to be. It's just a little bit. I'm just I'm doing a low dose. The media blows it out of proportion, and that wasn't that was made even worse by just the steroid forums that I visited and frequented. People would just do that all the time, and then it was it was only when I spent four hundred plus hours reading about. I think I read every single paper on the side effects of steroids, the psychosocial, or the psychology of doping the mechanisms by which we justify it to ourselves, all of this kind of stuff. And I just, like I said to you earlier, my psyche melted. Like intellectually, I just couldn't, I couldn't stay on steroids knowing that 
knowing all of this, there was no way. Like, I knew that anything that came out of my mouth would be one of the six psychosocial mechanisms, you know, one of, I just, a form of moral disengagement. You know, anything, I, especially knowing that, like anything I said after that to myself that would enable me to carry on using steroids, I knew would be a lie that I would be telling myself. And I knew it. So I, I just, just fell into a, a very depersonalized, derealized depression of like, holy shit, how could I have been so wrong? How could I have been so stupid? Like, I don't want to be doing this. But with steroids, you can't just come off. You have to taper, well not taper off, but you, you come off and you take these other drugs that help you, your body, get back to producing testosterone by itself and not getting it from the injections every week. And that takes a while, it takes a few weeks. And in those weeks, when your testosterone's bottomed out, you are chemically the most depressed you've ever been in your life. So with the depression I had from the realization that, holy fuck, I'm lying to myself, and I, you know, I don't want to be doing steroids, but not wanting it to get worse. That was the worst depression I've ever had in my life. And not wanting it to get worse because I was in my last year of university. I didn't want to do worse in my exams because I was even more depressed or I didn't want to go visit my family at Christmas and be crying because I'm coming off steroids. So I just sweeped it under the carpet <laughs> until the end of university. And then I told my parents, I came clean and I just said, I don't want to do this. I, 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 and for them, it was just so fresh. But for me, it had been months of depression of realizing I didn't want to do it. So that was a difficult conversation. But thankfully, my father's a pharmacist or pharma, pharmacological consultant. So he helped with coming off. And I did a lot of research about coming off safely. And I just, now that I'm off, life is so much better. So much better. So much richer. Um, yeah. Thank that you. answers your question. My, yeah. Thank you for that story. Yeah, no worries. So in case there is someone that's watching this and they're thinking about taking steroids, mm -hmm. can we talk about your story a bit longer? For instance, for sure. How did it feel in the beginning? So the first time you took steroids, how did that feeling change throughout the months and the years in your case? And and uh, uh, can you finish with? talking a bit more about what happened in the end, so the depression part, if you feel comfortable yes, with it. Sure. I'm an open book. Um, Thank you. So how it felt the first time, no worries, was, it was exciting. It started off, I started off with an oral cycle, so like pills. Larry's dead. Look at me. I know it's you. I know you're doing this, right? It's because you weren't concentrating. You need to concentrate on this conversation. It's important. If you've ever considered steroids, if you've ever wanted to start your own business, it's the fact that we didn't have your full attention is the reason that the video cut off. Wake up, man. Smell the cheese. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Flavius is just peeing right now, so I'm just doing this little, this little bit. <laughs> I'm quite funny. It's a personality trait that I, I own. Um, and I'm okay with it. I'm funny. I'm out there. <laughs> you never know what I'm going to do next, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so, yeah, so what it felt like first time, I started with oral steroids, and for the first two, three weeks you take them, you think you've bought something fake, something fake, because 
it takes a while for it to be in your system and to get something out of it. It takes like typically two, three weeks. So in those two, three weeks, nothing really happens. So the first time you ever take steroids, you might as well take, be taking an aspirin. Like, hmm. um, but anyway, so I, what I took was Anavar, it was called. And gradually, you know, my strength started going up. I, I'd been cutting, so I took it because I was losing all the muscle. And my strength started going up, um, getting a little bit bigger, getting a good pump in the gym, uh, felt great. And then my sex drive deleted itself, like... It was gone. Completely gone. I had a girlfriend at the time as well, which was kind of like... For someone that doesn't understand, like, how could you understand what I was doing to myself? Um, you know, the part you didn't, of... You huh? didn't even understand. I didn't fully, I thought I did, but I didn't fully understand. It's just like, oh, my boyfriend is just not into me at all. <laughs> and so that was tough. And it's just tough as a man, just not having a sex drive, you feel like... You just feel like less of a man, I guess. You know, men are supposed to always be ready for sex and always be, even though that's ridiculous, but it, it hurts you, it hurts your masculinity. And so I read about it and it's because that if you don't, if you take orals, the way steroids work is that it, when you introduce testosterone, it's called exogenously, so from the outside, um, you signal to your body to stop producing it endogenously, so inside. So your body stops producing your natural testosterone because it's, it's like, okay, we're getting enough from this source. Let's stop that process. And so, but with orals, you're not, your testosterone, I don't know how to explain it. You can shut yourself down. So you, what's really recommended is that you do injectables alongside so that you don't have this testosterone crash and your testosterone levels are kept high and you get the benefits from orals. So that was a natural transition into injectables for me because I lost my sex drive, you know, I didn't feel that great. I felt like low, low test, even though I was on steroids. So I bought testosterone. Um, and I was always scared of needles before as well, but that was interesting the first time. Like every single time you've got an injection in your life, it's probably been by a medical professional. Um, so the whole process of it, it, it doesn't really matter if you know about it or not, because it's just done to you by someone else. But I had to look up how to inject, how to do it. You know, there's a, when you put a needle in your leg, you're supposed to make sure it goes into the muscle, not too deep. You, you don't want to damage a nerve, not into a vein or a capillary, because you, you know, inject oil into your directly into your blood. That's a bad idea. <laughs> or air directly into your blood. That's a bad idea. So you do it into the muscle, and then before you press down, you pull back, and if blood enters the syringe you know you've hit a capillary or a vein, so don't press down. It's a little, I forgot what it's called. It's a little test you do. It's all these little things. Um, that felt weird. That felt like, fucked, fucked up. <laughs> but at, at the time I didn't think, you know, I've completely disengaged from my morals. I told everyone, I was like, Haha, I'm on steroids. I would inject in front of my girlfriend, I injected in front of my sister and my friends. And looking back now, that was an attempt to normalize it for me, you know, if they saw it and they were like, you're crazy. And I went, <laughs> I know <laughs> it became a joke and not like a serious problem, the serious problem that it was. So testosterone, what it felt like more aggressive, more confident in the gym. You know, when you have a really good session, every session was a really good session. Right. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. 
like every session where you felt like your best one, good pump, PB, um, shoulders get wider. Traps as well. Traps, you know, all the androgen receptors are located in the kind of upper regions of upper chest, shoulders, traps, and that's what most guys want to develop anyway. You want to look good in a tank top or... So, ah, I was... I liked it at first. It was quite... It was quite fun, I guess. But, um, I mean, just like, I'm sure heroin is fun. When you're on it, it's like, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's, from the outside in, it's fucked up what you're doing, you know? Right. The damage you're causing yourself, potentially others, same with your aggression. Like, I, I got into more fights when I was on steroids. Um, Did your mentality change in any, uh, any other way? For instance, were you able to understand different topics better, to focus better? <sighs> Not, not really. Mm. I think it's hard to tell because I was at university, so you don't really do much independent. I mean, it is all independent learning, but like, it's not like I was learning about other things. Right. Indeed, you know. So I don't know whether if I'd been on steroids or not, if uni university would have been any easier. I don't know. But uh, what you do feel a bit more, you know, when you feel like you're the shit. Yeah, like the you walk into a room and each yeah, it placebo or not, it did feel a bit more like you had more of a a presence. Um, but that's all, all that shit is just founded in male insecurity. Like the fact that that is even a thing that you'd want that, and that you can't develop that through training your voice, training your personality, you know, developing your personality like an actual intellectual does, and thinking you need a drug to fix it is just fucked um, and then as for the depression it was just yeah like I said the realisation that I, I'm lying to myself I am I don't want to be doing this anymore um, so after how long did you realise that this is not the way after about a year a year I think it was yeah yeah it was shortly after I split up with my previous girlfriend that I kind of, I was very emotional, I was very upset about breaking up and I couldn't, I couldn't tell if the steroids were making me more emotional or if I was just very upset, because I was upset anyway, but I just couldn't tell, you know, am I in this much pain because of the steroids or because, and because I, I felt like I couldn't tell if any of my reactions to anything were me, like, you know, am I depressed, am I emotional or is this making me emotional, I, I'll never know. And so it kind of threw me off my own judgments about myself and my emotional reactions to things. I felt like they weren't really, I wasn't in control. I wasn't very confident about my own, re you know, you lose, it's, it's weird how, how it can affect your mental state. And then just the disappointment in myself, like I'm, I'm a smart guy. I was a smart kid. I liked reading and learning things. I mean, I still do, but you know, when I was 10 years old, someone told me that when you're 20, 20 or 22, you're going to be a bodybuilder on steroids. I would have been like, <laughs> no, thank you. And so it was it, all that realization. I was just, but, but also not wanting to end it or not being able to end it immediately. That was really just quite like, just tore me knowing I wanted to stop it, but not being able to stop it. And having those two parts constantly just for like six to nine months at university while trying to socialize and study and... <sighs>
So once you got off of steroids, once you stopped, how did that transition feel? How um, was it? Uh, you said that uh, the depression started a lot earlier than that point. Yeah, yeah. It was not like, even though I was chemically depressed when I came off the night, I would still go to the gym and I would tell everyone in the gym, like, my dick doesn't work. My friends, not everyone in the gym, but like, you know, my dick's not working. I'm, you know, I cried on the train today because I was listening to a sad song. Um, you know, I kind of made it a joke and it was a bit because although it was technically, I was technically, you know, highly emotional. I was also so happy that it was over, that I was just, this was part of the end. <laughs> you want to do that for such a long oh, time. Oh my God. So like, I don't want to be that person. That isn't me. That isn't, you know, I don't want people to point at me and go like, that's the gym guy. I want people to point at me and go like, that guy's the founder of his company or he's, you know, he's really funny or he's really interesting or he's really not, or he's really creative. Not, he's a gym rat. Yeah. Didn't want that. Yeah. Um, and so I just came out the other side and I just felt, I, I still feel incredible. Like, it's, it, it just really isn't worth it. I was anxious before coming off about like, what if everyone discounts all the progress I made before I took them? Because like my bench was like 140 before I took them. And I was like, what if people think like, oh, he couldn't, he couldn't have got 120 without them. Like, coming out the other side, I was like, why does that even fucking matter? Who, who cares what other people think about what I lit? Like, it, it seriously doesn't matter. It's like a real realization that no one cares how much you lift. Really, they don't. It's that spotlight effect again. Everyone cares how much they lift. <laughs> But, um, and, and the realization, so as soon as I came off, I committed myself to get, to try and get as strong as I was on them, but without them and really going like, I needed 10 X my discipline in the gym because I was just using cheat codes with steroids. You know, I, w I didn't actually go all the way, see how far my discipline could take me. So let's do it. So I, I bulked, I put on a lot of strength, uh, I didn't get to where I was in steroids. I think my bench got up to 155, almost 160. And then once that happened back last May, I just went, okay, now I'm getting shredded. Now I'm, now I'm losing all this fat. Um, and last time I did it was when I got upset that I was losing muscle and that I felt like I was small again. Um, and this time I was like, that, that had just been completely deleted. Like I didn't have that, and I still don't. So I just, the realization that no one cares what you lift it does not matter if you're like, it just looks personally, this is my belief. You just look better if you're leaner. It doesn't matter how much muscle you have really. No, no one cares. But if you're leaner, your face is more attractive. Your body looks more statuesque. Again, it really doesn't matter how big you are. Um, that's my current belief. And so, yeah, I just, my identity is no longer tied to the gym. And I think that was the healthiest transformation that if I lose like a lot of strength, does matter. It's nice to still strive to make progress in whatever it is you do, but the gym shouldn't find you. Yeah, it's so closely intertwined with body image and like how you self-esteem that is hard to extract just progress from how you feel about yourself. Like it's just such a a relief when you just relax a little bit, stop caring about your strength. So, before we move on to where you are right now, which is, <laughs> by the way, amazing, we'll put up a video mm. to show that. 
We talked a lot about steroids and uh, I just want to make sure that we get the point across that this is not the way. Can you summarize in a few points the, the most important ideas you learned throughout this experience? Yeah, okay. So if, if you're into the gym, this will resonate with you more obviously, but the thing that gets you into the gym in the first place, uh, however you frame it, is a fundamental dissatisfaction with yourself, your body, your strength, you know, fat, whatever it is, that's what gets you into the gym. Um, or maybe even if it's just that you don't have some something to, you know, somewhere to exercise discipline, whatever it is, it's, it starts from a place of dissatisfaction. That takes you to the gym. And then the problem that a lot of people have is that their identity and their self-image, which is, like we said, almost impossible to extract, is tied to this progress. And, and because of that, um, that can lead to a lot of unhealthy life decisions. Much as you might think the gym is a healthy hobby, uh, you can end up messing yourself up. And it's important to be aware of the interplay of body image and how your self-image, your identity, and the progress you're making are actually very much intertwined and being able to untangle them is is what you should be doing instead of thinking that steroids or any sort of supplement, supplement will help develop that identity even more because it's not, you're just falling down the rabbit hole 100% I've been there, <laughs> I've studied it I did interviews with people who were on steroids who hated it who didn't like who they were, you know, I've, I've, I really immersed myself in this world and it's just not, it's just not worth it. It really isn't worth it. I've, I've never felt happier than I do not on them. I feel totally proud of myself, like a hundred percent my hard work, nothing else. And it's such a great feeling. So you never felt happier. That seems like the proper transition to talk about where you are right now, <laughs> because right now you can go check him out on uh, Instagram, Danielism. You look insane. Hmm. What? Uh, so you are cutting, right? You've been cutting for a while. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your diet? How did you manage to get to the point you are? Even though you're not on steroids, you look, in my opinion, a lot better than you used to. Thank you. Easy. <laughs> sounds, that sounds bad, but it's easy, it really is. It's again, it was relaxing. Just relaxing on the gym, right? I don't know how fitness literate whoever's watching it, this is, but basically, your body uses a certain amount of calories to exist, to breathe, to think, to walk, to you know, whatever it is. And there's a number that if you consume that number of calories, you will stay the exact same weight. If you consume a little bit more, your body will store that excess as energy to use later, fat. And if you eat less, it'll burn the energy stores that you, you've saved for later to make up for that gap. That's how fat loss works. And any diet is a different variation of that. So what you want to do is eat less than your body burns. You can figure this out. There's loads of online calculators. Make sure you keep your protein high. Again, on screen, I'll put some recommendations up. Um, about two grams per kilo body weight, roughly, is a good starting point. I go a little bit higher. 
And then that's it. Don't sweat anything else. Do not, don't sweat carbs, fats. Don't, you just don't sweat it, just relax. And it makes it so much easier to stick to. You know, the mistake a lot of people make, and again, the literature on, on diet adherence says is the most important part of any diet is that it's one that you want to stick to. If it feels so out of your routine and so out of your comfort, and even just food-wise, you feel like it's such a shift from what you're used to eating, you're probably not going to be able to stick to it. So don't sweat it, eat high protein, eat less calories than you burn, buy a step counter, because um, that will really help you track how many calories you're burning and doing a little bit more activity like that, like increasing your step count. That's it, that's all I did. And I've got, I'm in the best shape I've ever been in my life with the least effort. I agree. <laughs> like it's, it's just not sweating it, it's just not, you know, I used to be so obsessed with it, and now it's the fact that I've relaxed, I go to the gym two, three days a week, it's, it's just never been easier to just be in fantastic shape. So you do cardio uh, to, keep in, to keep fit, I but do. you don't do hit or something more uh, no. focused no. on that? Sometimes I run, but uh, not really actually, to be honest. Just you prefer steps. walking? I just prefer walking, because I can concentrate on an audiobook, or I do a lot of my thinking when I'm walking, mm. a lot of my thinking when I'm walking. So it's a two-in-one. Right. Phone call. I do a walk and a phone call, so I get you know. That's it. That's that really is the blueprint to get getting shredded. Do you have an ebook about that? I will. You will. I will have an ebook about what that. What a surprise! That's expect that. But that, that's it. Like it's the ebook will be like two pages. It's just. So it'll be free. But like there's no there's no secret to it. Mm -hmm. It's just the secret. It lies in your ability to dive into your own mind and let go of the thing that got you into the gym. So if you've always felt small, if you've always felt fat, or whatever it is, that's holding you, that is hurting you. Because your, your identity is tied to your gym progress. And how you feel about your image is tied to your gym progress. And so, when you start to lose that progress because of your diet, it feels like you're losing you're no longer, you know, the strong guy in the room or the big, the guy with big arms in the room and that, all that is just total bull, like it's, just, it just stops you from being able to get shredded. Yeah. <laughs> With, without drugs. Because you just can't, and you, you feel like you're mm -hmm. having to choose it, it. You get in the way of yourself. You get in the way of yourself, exactly. So do you take any supplements? Whey protein, yes. Um, not that often, but yeah, I make a smoothie just to help get that high protein because eating too much meat is just, gets a bit sickening after a while or just trying to get it from, it's just so much easier to get half your daily protein in a big shake. Yeah. Um, I, I do intermittent fasting as well. That's actually important. So Why is that? Why did you, did you choose to go with intermittent fasting? Just, again, dietary adherence. For me, I like eating until I'm full. Um, so I don't believe in eating tiny little meals spread out through, throughout the day. I much prefer not eating until a certain time because you don't get hungry. You might in the first few days, but after that you don't get hungry and it's very manageable. And then just eat, you know, if you, if you're on 2000 calories, that's, that's quite low for you. But if you eat that in the space of six hours, that's a lot of, that's a lot of food. It doesn't feel like you're changing your diet habits. It just feels like you forgot to eat in the morning. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it doesn't feel like some sort of diet where you're carrying around Tupperware with broccoli and, and celery, you know, fuck that. You enjoy, you actually enjoy what you're eating. Yeah. You can do that even when you're dieting. Yeah. As long as I hit my protein, whatever else adds up to the calories I need to eat, if it's a bag of sweets, like, doesn't matter. Really, really doesn't matter. Right. Again, that's not like, and that's not to say that this is the most efficient way to do it. For me, it's the, the easiest way for me to stick to it. Because I never, I was, for some reason, I was never able to stick to a diet before this one. Mm -hmm. So a while back, you started working on a new company. It's uh, about a new tropic stack. Can you explain the audience? Of course. What that is and talk about your company in general. So this is, a, this is my startup. Okay, it's pretty cool, huh? Um, it's a new, so, it's an effervescent tablet, like Barocca, inspired by my, my dissertation that I did uh, on cognitive enhancement and performance enhancement, um, and a lot of the nutrition stuff I did on my course. I was inspired, to, you know, to come up with an alternative to study drugs. So, well, not an alternative. So, so it's a nootropic. Nootropics are drugs designed to increase our cognitive faculties, whether that be ability to be productive or to be happy or to be not anxious, you know, whatever it is, it's just to kind of augment the mind through supplementation. So I'm big into that. But um, in all of the nootropic forums on Reddit, there's like 170,000 members. All of the posts that are pinned at the top about talking about the recommended beginner stack and the recommended like nootropic stack that that's been shown to work and we also did this in my course um, with really no side effects like there's only two ingredients there's caffeine and there's theanine and uh, together the two work very well to increase uh, attention your ability to concentrate so this is something that's well studied well studied and uh, most interestingly the the so theanine is found in green tea right. in much lower doses but um, it works to reverse a lot of caffeine's ill effects. So anxiety, increased blood pressure, things like that. Uh, it takes it away, the jitters, and increases caffeine's cognitive enhancing effects. So together, they work synergistically, very nicely together. And I wanted to put it into an effervescent tablet. And I did, decided to do that as soon as I graduated, really. And then I haven't, really, I haven't looked back since, that's what I'm doing. And we're launching in July. We're launching this July, so I'm very excited. So where can we buy this from? Online. Amazon initially. That's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be testing sales online. Uh, and having someone take care of the fulfillment of the orders and all that kind of stuff so that I can... You know, because I'm, kind of, I'm a one-man army at the minute. It's just me. So, and that will free me up to do all the marketing and creative side of things and the business development and stuff. So... Yeah, that's it. So when are you gonna launch it? In a few months? Yeah. July. I'm so excited. I am so excited. And uh when it came to creating the the product. Yeah. Uh you spent a lot of time on creating this label as well, right? Yeah. Did you use uh what you know about storytelling in order to create it? Because it looks extremely well done. Thank yeah, you. And you created it yourself, right? Well, well I won't take credit for it. I ran a design competition uh, on a website called 99designs right. for, for the logo. 
and for the packaging. And so what, what that, that website is, is basically you put up a project brief. So I was like, design a nootropic effervescent label. And then loads of designers submit their designs and you pick a winner and the winner gets the money. And so loads of people submitted their designs and then I put the top ones in a poll and I sent that poll to the Powerlifting Society here. So there's 50 or 60 responses, people who voted their favor. And the one, it looked like this, the one that won, it was a little different. And then since I've kind of updated and changed it myself because I've taught myself how to make all these labels now. Um, but that's, that's how the label was done because I've had experience with designers before and being kind of a designer myself, I know that sometimes they just don't get the vision that you have. And it's such a waste of time and money if they don't get it. Absolutely. So if you open a competition up to 60 people, you know, one person might think like you do or have just their creative vision for your idea is most closely aligned to yours. And it's a great way of kind of mitigating that problem where you just don't like what the designers made and you just kind of stuck with a brand that you truthfully don't really like the look of. So is there a limit for the number of tablets you can take daily? Um, recommended that you don't take more than three or four in the same way that typical caffeine guidelines will tell you not to drink more than a certain amount of coffee. Mm -hmm. But in reality, uh, you can take as many of these as you want. Like you, Nothing's going to happen No, to they're you. very safe. Both very safe, very studied like compounds. Um, you know, if you're pregnant, if you're under 16 or anything like that, no, obviously no. But, uh, yeah, I think... To overdose on caffeine, the LD50 of caffeine, which is the lethal median dose, it's a pharmacological measurement to kind of define what the lethal dose of any medicine is. And uh, that's done by figuring out how much would be required to kill 50% of a population and then calling that the, the median lethal dose. And it's typically done on rats and extrapolated to humans. But for you to, to overdose on caffeine, you would have to have like... 100 cups of coffee in 15 minutes or something. Whatever Insane it takes. Number. Huh? Insane number. Insane number. And you die from drinking too much water before you die from caffeine overdose. <laughs> so, I mean, in, so in that sense, you can have as many as you want, but don't overdo it. Don't be silly. I, I take maybe three a day. Uh, other days, just one. It depends. So do you truly feel that it helps you to focus better? Yeah. With any cognitive enhancement, What a lot of people look for is they, they're looking for something that's going to motivate them, which doesn't really work like that. Uh, so even if you take them and you have the, this enhanced ability to concentrate or whatever, you still have to apply yourself and make the time and the space to, to do that thing that you need to do. That, none of these products are going to fix that for you. Nothing. If you take Ritalin, Adderall, you still need to focus, to tell yourself that you're going to focus, you know? So... But I do think it helps. I do. I'm a big believer in supplements that help the mind because I'm, I'm very passionate about the mind, my own mind, and I want to protect it and I want to enhance it and I want to, you know, so anything that helps really excites me and why not make a business out of it. Are there any other nootropic stacks you are taking? No. So this is the one you found to work the best? It's the one I found to work the best, easiest, it's not like, it's legal. Um, it's the most kind of evidence behind it. 
and also it's the first one. If this is successful, then maybe we'll make some other ones, you know, catered to other people's nootropic preferences. But for the moment, I'm just starting with caffeine and theanine because it's a safe bet. Uh, great reviews. And uh, it's just, it works. Like I said. Where can people follow you to make sure that they manage to get their hands on the first batch, on the first release? So, I would pre-order on the website. The website's going to be up, hopefully when this interview is up. I'm building that at the minute. Um, but yeah, pre-order on that. The first 5,000 orders of these. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it an experience. I want, as well as my other competitive edges, I want part of the brand experience to be one that feels really cool and special, kind of like Apple. So if you're one of the first 5,000 people to buy this, you're going to get a custom box. Um, you're going to get a hand-signed letter saying thank you for being one of the first customers. Uh, you get a couple of other perks just because I want to, I really want to thank the people who, again, if this takes off, will have made my dream a reality. You know, there's so much thanks. It's, net, it's, it's that whole thing about storytelling and audience. Like without audience, you have you don't have anything. You don't have a good story. You don't have a good product. If you don't have people that are consuming it. Um, so I'm really thankful for anyone who pre-orders. Mm -hmm. You, this is going to be a funny transition, but you mentioned Apple. Is there anyone from, the, from those people that have managed to get to a higher level? To a level maybe you aspire to get to. Is there anyone you follow? Is there anyone you wish to be like? Is there anyone that inspires you? Do you have a mentor in that sense? Not really. I have. I'm very inspired by my cousin. My cousin. Uh, I won't name him because I don't think he wants to be named. But he has a YouTube channel and he, he has a lot of subscribers. Two point something million. He makes history animation videos. You should tell him to name uh, before I'm successful. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he's very. He's a, he's a super creative guy. Um, yeah, I've seen his videos. They yeah. are insane. But even just knowing him personally, he's a. He's, really, is a creative genius. Um, and I remember him from such a young age, just being taking such a specific interest in things that other people didn't notice, and and animating when he was like ten years old, building his own websites when he was ten years old. Uh, musically, he's very gifted. He won a lot of, he studied film, won a lot of awards. You know, he's just very. And and the people that I idolize most are creatives. That's something that I value a lot. Uh, just developing, honing, lifelong, your creative craft is, I think, is the most important thing in the world, like, indescribably so. Absolutely. So yeah, so if anyone, probably my cousin. That's, uh, that's interesting because most people say Elon Musk or, I know, other people like Elon Musk. Yeah. It's uh, refreshing to hear that you do not idolize these people. I want to be my own version of that level of success, but you know, not theirs. <laughs> Do you have a morning routine or a daily routine that helps you get to that level you want to be at? Yes. What 
are those? My morning routine is, so I try as best I can, and as we all know, sometimes you just have shit days. But um, yeah, I have a morning routine. I wake up at about 6.30, 7, on a good day. Uh, the first thing I do, you know, shower, coffee, and read for two hours, two or three hours, if I can. Um, and I will read about my interests, like my, my specific interests. So currently I'm reading a book about, it's a sociology textbook on how social media is kind of warping the fabric of, of our lives and how we socialize. And um, I just find that very interesting. But just, I spend the first, because you know they say the first hours of your day should be, you should do the most important thing in your day then. For me, the most important thing is learning, like, hands down, um, above all else. Because you can outsource everything, you can't outsource learning. Um, and so I'll do that, and then I'll do the hardest tasks of, of my life admin and my business and, and trying to get clients freelance. Um, next and then that'll be until like 11 a.m and then from 11 till like 5 it'll just be whatever's on my to-do list and just doing it well or a creative project and um then gym and then evenings is just again just time to be creative like piano a lot of i play a lot of piano but yeah really like i make i try to make as much time as i can to hone my creative craft because mm -hmm. not enough people do that and not enough people the creative discipline is huge not enough people put in the time to, to really master their craft and so I think that's so important so in the beginning we talked about the books relating to storytelling yeah are there any other books about other topics for instance personal development that have shaped the way you think right now. Are there other recommendations you can make? Um, so, personal development. I got into a lot, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People was a big one. But I find that all of those books repeat the same sort of universal principles for le le leading a good life. What is that? I mean, being a good listener, being open to learning, being, uh, you know, d controlling your ego, um, creating discipline in your life, just the kind of pillars of personal development. And there's loads more, I'm not saying that, that that was them, but it's kind of, I feel like a lot of personal development books that I've picked up recently, just, it's the same thing, it's the same information, just rehashed and... So I don't really read a lot of personal development. I still challenge myself in my personal development and in being a better person, partner, son, brother, you know, but I don't, I don't know. I don't read too many of those books anymore. Do you have a favorite book? I, it's the story one the story. by Robert McKee. And then second to that is um, How to Die. How to Die, yeah. A collection of essays by Stoic philosopher Seneca, who spent his entire life studying people who died, who were dying, who found out they were going to die, who were, who were made to fight 
as gladiators who were sentenced to death, you know, and consoling people, mothers who lost their children, and what, you know, and he had six life lessons for how to live a life that when you die, you'll be happy, or not happy, but just not regretful and not, you know, and I, that book is, has been one of the most transformational books for me. I think about death a lot. Do you remember those six lessons? Because on this show, we are trying to point our audience towards stoicism a lot because we consider that to have a great impact, powerful impact upon our lives. Yeah. Do you remember those points? I don't remember the chapters, unfortunately. Um, I, it's one of those books, I read it in October and I've been meaning to reread it, revisit it and make notes again. Um, but I haven't got, I'm still finishing my other books. But, um, so no, unfortunately. But I can still speak about how it's transformed my life. Yeah, absolutely. It's just the, and this is something that a lot of entrepreneurs think about, death and, and time and how time is finite, like, and it's the most valuable resource we have. Absolutely. And, um, and that everything will end and all, everyone we love uh, will die. And, and so will we, and that's just the, the natural course of life. Um, and that kind of realization, as depressing and dark as it may seem, is actually incredibly empowering. Liberating. Liberating, and then it feeds into that whole nothing is real, uh, reality is what you make it kind of mentality, where you go like, with that Facebook page, it's like, who, who is going to give a shit that I made that page when I'm dead? Like, no one. No one's going to go like, uh, RIP, but remember that cringe Facebook page? Like, no one thinks of that when people die. And if anything, you forgot, like, you'll be forgotten before something like that will be brought up. So I'd rather people were cringing after my death so that it was kept alive than not. Yeah. But it's just, yeah, I think that's a, hu that's a really important part of entrepreneurship or the entrepreneurial journey is, and I think a lot of, most people go through it, is that realization that time is so valuable. Why would you give all that time to someone else to make someone else money? And, you know, why would you not create a life that allowed you to spend that time however you want? Because you're going to die and then everything, all of this was meaningless. And it will be when you're dead. So you, you have such a small window, such a small blip in the grand scale of the universe to do something cool and important and the changes that will change the world, you know, if, if you can, it's very grandiose, but if that should be your motivation. And if it's rooted in the awareness of death, so be it. So it's not give up on your time. And no. uh, you made the sacrifice <laughs> of following your dreams. Yeah. And uh, you chose to stay with your parents in order to be able to do that. You did not take the easy route, no. as in taking a job, uh, renting a place, living on your own, because that's what's cooler. You've decided to make this immense sacrifice. Yeah. How is that working out for you? And I'm interested in that as well, extremely interested. How did you manage to convince yourself and to, to convince yourself to believe in yourself that much? I've always had a lot of self-belief. That's something that I, it was not a struggle to develop. Um, I think from a very early age, 
like almost to the point of delusional self-belief I've been told but you know I, I know it's going to get me where I want to be but um, for me it was more so I've recently moved home uh, well recently since the new year and I'm living with my mother and all I'm doing is developing my business and developing my skills full time like just following whatever interests me so my most recent course was on 3D animation and rendering a room like the one we're in and then animate, you know, kind of almost pointless, but the more I'm committing to it, to the craft, and a lot of high level creatives will tell, will agree with this, the act of developing your craft and, and nurturing the constellation of all of your unique interests, so whatever they may be, stoicism, entrepreneurship, but then it's more specifically like little hobbies and interests, like learn those in more detail than most people all of them, and you'll be surprised how that unique constellation to you will make you insanely valuable and insanely irreplaceable. And most people don't realize that, like everyone's got the same, everyone in a certain kind of job will have the same skill set, and it's just cogging the machine. But like, and this is my current belief, we'll see where it gets me, but I really feel that nurturing that, nurturing all those specific interests and being able to do them all well, so for me, videography, photography, graphic design, your website, uh, storytelling, like all of these things, and they're slowly coming together in a way that I can't keep track of, but I can I can still sense and see the progression is happening, and it's making me more valuable. I'm talking to clients now for websites, and talking about numbers that are higher than they ever would have been a year ago, and it's just because I've developed my skill set, sales as a skill set, you know, persuasion, all of these things, and so. I, I wouldn't do it any other way. I'm, I'm so happy. I'm so happy because I know this is what I want to do. I know that I want to know a lot about a lot of things. I know I want to be good. The whole philosophy of choosing your one thing that you're good at, I'm, I can't do that. I have so many things I'm interested in. And even if I can't, you know, can't do all of them amazingly, I still know enough about them to know if someone else is doing a good job or to be able to manage it or anything. But, so that's currently my state and that my chasing my dream uh, that, that's what's happening at home, living with my mum. I thought I always thought that I'd be a loser if I did that, but I feel so happy and fulfilled. Turns out you are definitely not. Yeah, so we'll see. Alright, let's talk about psychedelics. You took psychedelics? <laughs> no, yeah. How was that experience? What determined you to do that and how? Did it change your life? Psychedelics are so interesting. They are. Um, and I am so drawn to them. I am so drawn to psychedelics. Uh, it's crazy. Their therapeutic benefits, their spiritual benefit, just perceptual like how it affects you as a creative and your bit, your creative vision. Um, so psychedelics, what motivates me to do them? Or what motivated me to do them? So is, how many times did you do that? It depends what psychedelic you talk, you're talking about. You told me a while ago about a story. The first time you did psychedelics, it, you said that it changed your life. Yeah. Can you talk about that whole experience because it's something extremely interesting and everybody is interested in that right now. Um, 
I think everyone is interested in psychedelics. There's a big movement at the minute. You know, yeah. there's part of, you know, if, you, if whoever's watching this now, you, you probably think like this too, that the whole, wait a minute, there are no rules. You know, I can actually make it, or people can make it if they do it by themselves without following the rules. You know, rules are, they don't really exist. I don't know, they're put in place to maybe keep order and things like that, but you know, and that nothing's real and that psychedelics really help nurture that perspective and reinforce it. And um, I take, I have a personal interest in them because I like to challenge my reality. Um, that's my motivation for taking them. And I find personally, my personal experience with psychedelics is, has been very helpful. It's been very enriching for my life. Um, so the, the story I told you about, I was in Amsterdam with my friends and we bought truffles. Uh, so magic mushrooms, basically. And it's not the first time I've done them. The first time I did them, similar experience, but this one's fresher. And uh, so, yeah, so I don't know if it's because I think I have OCD and I'm very, the way my mind works is very overthinky. Um, so when I take psychedelics, I, I have a very, initially anyway, and my friends who've seen me on them will confirm that I have a, a, an initially very anxious reaction, like I'm losing control and I want to stay in control of my mind. And it's like, what are all these things that are, these weird thoughts that are coming to my head mean? Because I analyze every single thought I have and to exhaustion. So when all these new ones flood my mind, it's, it's overwhelming. Um, and so, yeah, the last time I took them, I recall the, the, the real pivotal moment when I was on them. I was in my hotel room with my friend. And, you know, I was almost kind of like, it, it felt like uh, just chaos in my head. And I realized, and I have this every time with psychedelics, that like fighting that is the worst thing you can do. So there's a certain exercise. It, the exercise of submitting to the experience and to kind of allowing these thoughts to come in and just exist in your head for a while and not fighting it um, is the only way to kind of have a nice experience. If you spend the whole time fighting it, you're just gonna spend the whole time uncomfortable. So it's okay, what, were the, what are these thoughts? What is really causing me all this turmoil? And it'll be things like, why do I care about certain parts of my appearance so much? Like not, not, the actual insecurities themselves, but it's like, why do they bother me so much? And uh, you know, and I was, I would look at myself for ages, and I was like, why? Like, what is wrong with me? What? Why do these bother me so much? Why am I fundamentally unhappy with where I am in life right now? But like I am, or back then, I was like, I am fundamentally unhappy with. It was I was coming off steroids. I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, and. Um, all these kind of questions, I wrote down so many different things. It was a list of just different parts of me that I, things that I've been sweeping under the carpet, the carpet of my consciousness <laughs> for too long. And they all came to the surface and I had to confront them. And in doing so, it, it was just such a oddly, esoterically sort of liberating and cathartic experience. It, it was fantastic. I came out of it just like, just, I could not believe what had just happened to me. And, I, and what I always do with psychedelics, 
when I take them, I don't take them all the time, is I write down every single thought that was uncomfortable, every single thought process, because I want to keep all of that insight, take it out of the psychedelic realm and introduce it into my sober world and learn from it and challenge myself. And some of the things I'd be like, that didn't even make sense. Like that was just psychedelic garbage. But some of it was like, yeah, I really do. Why do I get so jealous? Like, why am I a jealous person when I'm jealous? You know, that's a huge one. And people don't admit that about themselves because it's that part of your consciousness that you don't, you know, only your good side. But uh, there's all these kind of things you have to, that psychedelics really help you challenge about yourself and in challenging them and in kind of conquering your own ego, that just helps you in every other area of your life. Relationship, arguing, you know, the, the ultimate aim of e dissolving the ego is, you know, you don't argue to be right. You argue, you know, that's why a lot of us argue, it's to be right. And so the other person knows, you know, gets what we're trying to say, but we don't, we don't try to get what they're trying to say. You know, it's a bit, it's always standoffish or in getting on with other people in business or anything. When the ego gets in the way, it really prevents us from making good deals, making good friendships, like all these, kind of, you know, so the whole, it's a whole, it's part of the process of the ultimate, like, <laughs> uber personally developed human being you can be, I think. And so I, that's why I'm, I'm hugely into psychedelics. So you did them once, you came out couple of that. Times. Couple times. Okay, so the first time you came out of that with a list of things you wanted to change, right? Yeah. How do you think doing psychedelics relates to moral disengagement? Why do you keep doing them? <laughs> Why do you did it multiple times if the first time gave you that list? Did you manage to check off everything on that list? Yeah, well, or work on them. Yeah. I suppose that a lot of the mechanisms of moral disengagement psychedelics particularly moral justification like I take them because it opens my mind and philosophically it, but yeah so what do you think it should be done in this case in the case of taking psychedelics and not knowing if you should stop or continue because you said it opens your mind you have that excuse yeah when what should be done about that should you continue to do it so I understand the question now. I don't have a, a concrete answer to that. I do psychedelics when my life gets to a point where I feel totally lost. Like, when I feel like I've lost control of so many parts of my mind, like jealousy, being insecure about certain things, uh, feeling unfulfilled, you know, all these kind of things. When they all get to a point where I kind of feel like I'm rock bottoming on all of them, which doesn't happen often, you know, very rare, but it happens. That's when I like to take them. And also when you, a lot of people would say, don't do that, do them when you're in a good place. But um, it just helps me confront like so many uncomfortable thoughts that I'm maybe not dealing with, forces me to confront them. So I do, I do them like, Last time I did them was two years ago. Before that was five years before that. So, you know, it's... Okay. Once in a long time. It's, yeah. You shouldn't do them all the time or you'll just become insane. <laughs> so, is there um, a way 
you go about doing psychedelics? Is there something, is there any way you prepare before doing psychedelics? Because I know that some people say for ayahuasca, I think it's called, you have to prepare your body in a certain way and of course your mind through meditation, for instance, and your body through eating less proteins and drinking water, a lot of water and taking vitamins, all of yeah. that. What do you know about this? Do you prepare in any way? When we bought the truffles in Amsterdam, it came with a, the Ten Commandments of psychedelics. So it was like, don't eat before, you know, do them on an empty stomach, make sure you're in a room or in a comfortable place. That's so important. You don't realize how unsettled you are in an unfamiliar environment until you do psychedelics. Then you go like, holy shit, I'm not comfortable around these people or I'm not comfortable in this room. Um, so that's, that's a big one. Make sure that you do it in an environment that you're totally comfortable in because that'll come up when you're on them, or for me at least. Um, it, again, it depends on the psychedelic. It depends on the, if you're just smoking weed, like... That's not... It's not... Well, I, th I believe marijuana can be... There's different levels of psychedelic experience. I think one to five. And weed can be all of them, uh, just depending on how much you smoke. <laughs> If you really smash it and have look, you can have like a really truly like kaleidoscopic psychedelic experience. But for the most part, most people don't really smoke enough uh, to do that. But uh, yeah, it depends on the psychedelic. The higher up you go, I think as as you go up to ayahuasca, DMT, all of those ones, the the preparation and the pre you know, before the drug is, is super important. And I've ne I've never done those, so I I can't really speak about them. I don't really have a good answer to that. <laughs> okay, so um, these are pretty much all the questions, but now we have the final two. The most interesting ones. One about Stoicism, about the fact that you're gonna die soon, Daniel. You are very interested in death, yeah. as you said. Yeah, yeah. And the next one is the challenge. That's the thing that you do or did that helped you evolve the most. Right. Daniel, right now, from this moment on, you have 24 hours left to live. Mm -hmm. What do you do? With my current bank account? With, no, you can assume that you have as much money as you want, have a plane, you have everything you want. And how do I die? How do you die? Is it, it just happens. Is it like tw at the 24 hour mark, just existence yeah. stops? Mm -hmm. It's not like I'm lying in bed. You are not, you are not suffering. It's nothing like that. It just stops. Um, I know what I'd do. I've already kind of planned what I would want to do. I would record a video for everyone important in my life. Everyone. I'd take that camera and I'd put it in front of me and I would record a special half an hour video for every important person in my life, giving them all of the compliments that I'd never given them. Because people don't give enough compliments. And that's the thing that we all kick ourselves about when people die, is that I wish we could have told them this. I wish. So I would, everyone that's close to me in my life, I would record a video for them um, so that they could have a little, just, you know, an after communication with me. It's difficult. When people die, it's such a shame that you never got to tell them all the things you wish you had. I would do that. And then after that, that would probably take like five to ten hours. <laughs> I would go and just spend time with my loved ones and help them prepare for my death, I suppose. Would anything change if you had six more days? 
I would just, for me, the most, like, I think, so because of storytelling, and because of my love for video and archiving memories, uh, I would just spend that week just recording as much as I could and kind of immortalizing my final week. More than, I'm not gonna go skydiving, I'm not gonna go, I'd just be skydiving knowing that I'm gonna die, I'd just be doing everything knowing that I'm gonna die and not actually creating any value. <laughs> Whereas that, so I would wanna create value, create videos, talk about, even a video talking about what it's like, I'm gonna die in a week, how do I, you know, and just maybe give advice to people in similar situations. If you're dying right now, that sucks. Death sucks. Like, but we we're all going to die. So it's nothing. You know, it's not that unique to you. Create some value. Tell all your loved ones how you feel about them. Do you know? Do something. Create some lasting value. Like, the legacy you still can. With that week left, that's that's a hundred percent what I do. I think that would create so much more value than than all the experiences that I would do that I would forget anyway when I was dead. And how would that legacy change if you had three years? Again, just a longer version of that. A longer keep version doing that. It's I really believe in creating value and helping people, like enriching as many lives as I can, and uh, helping as many people as I can. Like I really, really like helping people. Um, so with three years, I'd be like, okay, how can I scale my desire to help people to point, you know, and how can I just create the most lasting value? And if it is, I mean, if I had three years to live, I knew I had exactly three years to live. I would create a series like three years to live and I would, you know, and it would just, you could really do something cool with it. Yeah. Um, probably more than you could if you were just going to die normally. <laughs> so yeah, but it would all, it would be all about creating value because that's, that's what all I want to do. You want to leave, to be able to leave that legacy behind you. Yeah. I want to impact the world, um, as much as I can. and. And hopefully, as for as long as I can, you know they say you die twice, once when you draw your last breath, and the second time is when the last person ever says your name, and it's like the making the time between those two things as long as you can. Mm -hmm. That's what I want to do. <laughs> right. Thank you. No worries. And now to the final question, the final topic, the challenge. What did you do? Something that changed your life. Okay. This is a challenge for everyone? For everyone. For me as well. An, actionable, for me. an actionable one week challenge. Yeah. Maybe even something we can do daily in order to improve our lives or once a week. So, I'm a firm believer in writing things down makes them more real. It's more impactful. So, first of all, grab a pen and paper. I'll wait. <laughs> Seriously. It's fucking ridiculous. He's not getting his... <laughs> Just grab, anyway, so with a pen and paper, write down, first of all, that you're going to die and that you want to do something with your life before you die because you, you know you do, you know you do. Secondly, write down a list of all of your interests, everything that interests you. Be like, oh, I'd always, I've always liked to be good at photography, I'd always, you know, whatever those things that you, you've always wanted to kind of know more about that you've never got around to, write them all down on a list, order them by, you know, rank order them by preference and by kind of priority. And then for a week, commit to learning one of those in a lot of detail. There's courses for everything online. There's online courses 
uh, Udemy, Skillshare, all these kind of things. Just do one course. If it's a four-hour course, it's not actually that long. It's a long, it, you know, because we compare it to YouTube videos, but a four-hour course, follow it along in that one, one of the areas of the things you listed down. And at the end of the week, see how you feel, because you will feel amazing. You'll feel like it's no longer this the imagination you have of yourself where you're you're the super you're gonna be the super successful person one day, it's going to happen. How? Like something needs to actually you need to commit to a craft and you, or multiple. So make that list. Maybe do it before and after, you know, if it's if it depends what it is. It really depends what it is and what your interests are, and there really isn't a right answer here. But try to produce something at the end of that course, something to show for it. And just soak in how good you feel about yourself for committing to learning to that, because you will. And other than that, the last thing is, uh, for a whole week, do not check your phone in the morning. Don't check your phone until three hours after you wake up, like at all. If, it, if you have a partner or if you have family or if you have friends that need you, tell them the night before or just make it known that this is what you're going to do. Or, to be honest, people, most people don't give a shit if you don't reply till 10 a.m. Um, but just don't check your phone first thing in the morning. Don't give away uh, the first bit of attention and wakefulness you have in the day to everyone else's needs for you and demands of you. Like, don't do it. Don't do it to yourself. Respect yourself. Don't check your phone in the morning. Do that stuff. So I do a lot of my learning in the morning. And then after 10, just live your life like you would. And just see, just see how your life changes. And if it does, because it will. I put money on it. Me as I'm, well. I'm a risk taker. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Daniel, thank you so much no for taking the time. <laughs> it's been great. And guys, if you enjoyed this interview, if you enjoyed listening to Daniel's story, hit the subscribe button, like, comment, follow us on social media, Instagram. follow Daniel on social media. Yeah, has a YouTube channel as well. He's yeah. got Instagram. He's got everything. everything. Don't forget about this amazing thing. Yeah, it's gonna help you focus better. Yeah, this is what Daniel promises. Well, <laughs> yeah, I do. And uh, thank you for watching. See you next time. <laughs>